Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. My name is Nick and I'm here today with Todd. Greetings. And Percy. Hello. This week we are bringing you a brief overview of the next game you'll hear on the podcast, Bluebeard's Bride by Whitney Strix Beltran, Marissa Kelly, and Sarah Doom, published by Magpie Games. Uh, to kick us off, I'll talk a little bit about the genre and the style of the game. Uh, Bluebeard's Bride is a supernatural horror game that specifically explores patriarchy and gendered violence, drawing on the fairy tale Bluebeard. You play as the new bride of a rich lord whose name is Bluebeard uh, because he has a vibrant blue beard. Um, he goes away the morning after your wedding, but leaves you his keys, giving you free reign of the house, uh, but he forbids you from entering one specific room. Of course, eventually you do, uh, and within you find the bodies of Bluebeard's previous wives, illuminating the fate that awaits you when he returns to the house. So this game is sort of structured within this classic fairy tale, uh, and it uses this story as an opportunity to explore the fairy tale and craft a new narrative that's rooted in it. Um, and it has a very deeply collaborative approach to generating the rooms and the narrative threads that you as a group will explore. While the the game specifically deals with like gendered violence and the subjugation of women, it offers opportunities to subvert some of those narratives or um, in a safe way, like lean into them and explore some of society's pressures um, specifically on women. And we just want to note, like, while the original fairy tale is called Bluebeard, this is called Bluebeard's Bride because the focus is on you playing as the bride and not on him. He's absent the whole time, basically. Yeah. So the way the game actually works, uh, the game begins with a recitation of the Bluebeard fairy tale in a sort of truncated version, followed by character creation, where the players each choose an aspect of the bride's psyche collectively called the sisters to roleplay as. The players work collaboratively to add in details about the bride's wedding to Bluebeard, about the bride herself, and to figure out how their aspects feel about all the other aspects. The gameplay uh, works with each player in turn describing a key on Bluebeard's ring of keys after he has left the mansion, and the groundskeeper, which is the game's term for what we might otherwise call the GM, bringing them into the room that key opens and describing the horrors they find within. Horrors which often give hints to Bluebeard's past or the bride's eventual fate or something like that. After encountering these horrors, the sisters decide amongst themselves whether they feel faithful or disloyal to their husband Bluebeard after their experience in the room, and they take a token from the room to represent that faithfulness or disloyalty. After the sisters, as a collective, have accumulated enough tokens of either faithfulness or disloyalty, it's three tokens of faithfulness or disloyalty. They go to the forbidden room that Bluebeard told them not to enter, and that ends the game as they face a choice about what to do both with the room and then with what they found in the house. So looking at this a little bit mechanically from what the players are doing, each aspect, um, each of the sisters, has different face moves that they can choose to flavor their character. Um, They'll have three of these that are in addition to the moves that are available to everyone, which are the maiden moves and the ring moves. And I do think just to add a little flavor, we keep talking about the aspects, and I think it's worth noting that the aspects are all kind of archetypes um, in the mythic sense of femininity. So, you know, one is the virgin, one is the witch, one is the mother, and so on. You read my, you read my mind, Nick. Um 
This sort of also links uh, to uh, ring moves and then some of the maiden moves as well tend to be named after and predicated on sort of patriarchal stereotypes about what women are quote unquote allowed to do. Um, So some of the moves are like dirty yourself with violence, caress a horror, care for someone like there are the way that you are able to interact with the world as an aspect of the bride is really specifically gendered and is really very much about like the limits that are placed upon you as a woman in this world. Um, like you'll notice that like a lot of them have to do with, with care and with touch and with all of these things that are pretty stereotypically gendered. There is another move that is interesting. It's called shiver with fear. Um, and this is a move that is unique in that it is dependent entirely on the player rather than the character. Um, it is the groundskeeper trying to provoke some kind of like fear response, a shiver with fear, if you will, in the player. Um, and that will prompt the player to either pass the ring or uh, do something related to the fact that they as a player are clearly like having an emotional response to whatever eldritch horror the groundskeeper has set before them. And a lot of these are moves that you can only do when you are controlling the bride um, by holding the wedding ring. Um, but there are also maiden moves which are simple and usually don't require a roll. If you are holding the ring and you make a ring move after that, you you make a roll, you roll 2d6 because this is indeed a powered by the apocalypse game um, and not a modifier. The stats in this game are blood, carnality, and resilience, which interestingly, they are different from each other, but blood and carnality are difficult to sort of suss out what the differences between them are in context, uh, which I think is, is interesting and we can put a pin in that for later. So essentially the way that the mechanics work are you enter a room, the groundskeeper tells you what's there, you have some options regardless of whether you're holding the ring or not. Um, but if you are holding the ring and you make a ring move, you resolve that with a roll and then you pass it to somebody else. Um, and after everybody has had a turn with the ring, you can sort of flow freely um, based on how your aspect feels about other aspects, which aspects have proven themselves to be particularly good at handling certain kinds of situations. Um, and it's sort of this free exchange and then there's a there's another sort of move where you can essentially either you escape a room um, where like you are in a lot of danger and you need to just get the fuck out of there or you can um, like initiate the decision about whether or not you're going to take a token of faithfulness or a token of disloyalty. And that is another sort of significant move in the game um, that lets you sort of resolve individual rooms and progress closer to the end. And speaking of endings uh, throughout the game one of the consequences of the bride's explorations can be what the game refers to as trauma. Um, I'm just realizing this is the second game in a row in this season where trauma is a major mechanic. Why would we all be thinking about that in 2021? I don't know. Um, but but uh, the trauma can be a consequence of your actions, particularly of failing or only getting a partial success on a role. Uh, the bride may experience trauma from the horrors that she is facing. Um, trauma is specifically given usually to a particular aspect, usually the person who rolled, although there are some mechanics uh, with some of the aspects faces and maybe also a couple of the roles. I don't remember exactly that will distribute trauma to all all of the aspects instead of just one. Uh, and if an aspect acquires five trauma points, the sister that that sister, quote unquote, shatters, um, which means that basically that part of the bride's identity or aspect has been lost, 
given up to the horrors of the house. There's a, there's a little ritual that goes with the process of shattering, which you might get to hear uh, in our actual play. Uh, and then that as the player of that aspect is no longer part of the bride. They don't get to make uh, moves anymore. They uh, their face powers are no longer in play. They are essentially out of the game, which I find interesting, except that when they have shattered, they can be asked specifically to become a kind of co-groundskeeper uh, and help describe the horrors in the house to the other uh, sisters. So I find that a really interesting mechanic that there are very few there are very few ways to be out <laughs> in a tabletop role playing game. I feel typically um, this is one where it actually I think the game expects you to uh, do that at some point. I'd be surprised if there are very many games of Bluebeard's Bride where absolutely no one shatters. Yeah, um, it is but- remarkably easy to accumulate trauma. The only way I think the main way, if not the only way of removing trauma is to take tokens of faithfulness, which I think is fascinating from a mechanical standpoint, given that tokens of faithfulness illustrate like, I have no reason to fear Bluebeard. Like Bluebeard clearly hasn't done anything wrong. There's nothing shady going on at all. Yeah, I was going to say fascinating, both mechanically and also like ethically, psychosocial <laughs> sta- statement. Yeah. <laughs> there are a couple face moves that allow you to either like reassign trauma or remove trauma from someone, which I thought was interesting. There was also an example in the book um, about the mother has a face move where you can like punish someone by forcing them to take the trauma, but you also take trauma because of that, which I thought was fascinating just as like, it feels like it would never be advantageous for you to do that. But the rules are trying to like say, this is an option and this is something you can do if you feel it is the right thing to do, whatever that means for you. There's also the, to my mind, absolutely fascinating move i'm trying to look up to make sure i get it right that the uh, animus has the animus is meant to be sort of the the bride's sense of justice and righteousness and the animus has a face move where you can explain it when another sister takes trauma the animus can explain to her how the trauma she is experiencing is her fault then ask if the sister believes her and if the sister does believe her that sister marks one less trauma and if she doesn't then that then the animus marks trauma i find this an absolutely fascinating like play on that format that that formula shows up in a lot of powered by the apocalypse games of like do a thing and ask somebody if they like believe you trust you whatever if they do hooray if they don't you you have a negative consequence but I feel like it's so much more loaded in this game because of the themes of the game. Um, yeah, well, it's just fascinating to me. Something that I think is really interesting about this game is that I think it puts you in the mindset of not like, even if you haven't, even if you aren't super familiar with the um, mechanics or whatever, I think it's pretty clear when you enter this game that like the win condition is not great. <laughs> like the best outcome is still probably not very good. <laughs> Um, so I think it puts you in the mindset of like not really playing to win. Like I, I think 
as a player in this game, I would be more in the headspace of like, what is dramatically interesting? What is narratively interesting? Um, what am I trying to do? Like, I, I think it rewards sort of turning the logical part of your brain off and moving forward either very much in character or like really yeah, putting yourself in this situation and thinking about what is what is role playing what is interesting in a role playing sense um so yeah like i i think it sort of encourages you to like take on some take on some trauma and see and see what happens um even though it is like scary and scary and bad well and because all of the players are playing aspects of the same character it brings you this like deeply, deeply rooted collaborative model in a way that, you know, in Blades in the Dark, for example, you can have characters with somewhat competing agendas because everybody's playing their own character. Really, everybody by the setup of this game has to have the same fundamental agenda um, just in the premise. And they just have different approaches to like what their priorities are within that and what their values are. Yeah. Well, and I think I think the game is doing a really interesting thing in that it is simultaneously encouraging collaboration or not even encouraging. It is requiring collaboration, but it's also encouraging uh, arguing with each other. Like the handbook is really specific about like you don't have to agree with everybody else at the table. And in fact, it's better if you don't. For example, if you are holding the ring and you decide, okay, I'm going to leave the room and decide uh, faithful or disloyal, everybody has a stake in that conversation and everybody can say, based on what I have witnessed happen in this room, this is what I think. But the person holding the ring ultimately gets to make the decision. So if you as a character have decided like, um, because every aspect at the beginning also says, you know, I'm prone to like, I sort of think that Bluebeard is a good guy or I sort of think the bluebeard is a bad guy and you sort of enter the enter the game with that decision being made for your aspect or your sister. Um so if your sister is like super on board with bluebeard, he's definitely not doing anything wrong. You can go above everybody else's heads and make the decision like, "Oh, I'm you know, I'm taking a faith token of faithfulness unless I have a really 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 good reason not to even if everybody else at the table is like, "No, absolutely fuck this guy." <laughs> um which is interesting and then that could impact like, "Do you get past the ring?" Or don't you like I think that dynamic is a really interesting one to set up, particularly given that, like, if this is a game about misogyny and the way that women are treated in society, like a very frequent thing that you see is that women get sort of pitted against each other in contexts where it's like actually kind of like a man's fault. Um, so to sort of embed that dynamic in the way that the ring is passed and who has agency in a given moment is really, really interesting to me. Well, and the ring. I find the ring a fascinating mechanic because it it sort of forces that by saying only one player gets uh, full narrative control isn't the right word. But like at any time, one player has a lot more narrative agency than all the others. And that's hard coded into the ring mechanic because the player carrying the ring is the only one who can make any of those ring moves which are the ones that tend to be really consequential both good and bad um in, in terms of mechanics um so the ring so the ring bearer we're in lord of the rings suddenly um the ring bearer is the only one who can attempt to exit a room uh as well so 
that's and they you know they control they control essentially the bride's body and that is a a lot of power that gives the game much more of a feeling of like okay now it is x's turn than in any other tabletop game i have seen i guess except maybe in like dnd combat so i guess i should say it's more of a feeling of that than any other narratively focused game I've seen, like any other Powered by the Apocalypse game or kind of similarly, quote unquote, not as crunchy games. And I, I think it, it kind of highlights that like agency, lack of agency dynamic for the players. Um, it's not just that the world is maybe taking agency from you, but that at different points, like you are not in control at all. Um, even if you are protesting very strongly against exploring what's in the back of that closet that's bleeding right now or what have you like. And I think that's a very interesting thing as as a, a person who like hates horror fiction and shows and movies, but like loves horror video games because I can choose when to not to go into a room. Mm-hmm. I can choose like when I'm like, I'm actually good right now. And I'll like come back to this when I'm more constituted being in a situation where someone else is like, well, actually, the controller's in my hands now. So, yeah, we're going to see this whether you like it or not. Yeah. And I think that's a reason that the genre is such a good fit for this story that this game is trying to tell, um, because I think horror horror is scary because you don't have control. Like horror is at its scariest when you don't have all of the information and when you don't know what's going on and when you are sort of like, yeah, not in a, not in a powerful position. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's an extreme, I can confirm from simply watching that it is an extremely scary game. Um, and a lot of the scariness of it comes from the fact that it is like simultaneously, deeply and beautifully collaborative in the terms of like building a world together and everybody contributing all of these things. But also the groundskeeper is actively trying to sort of exploit the player's weaknesses at every turn. And the players are all sort of encouraged to stand up for themselves and not be afraid to argue with each other, even to the extent that like passing the ring could be like, Oh, I trust this aspect to do the right thing in the situation or like, Oh, I don't want that other person to have it. So I'm giving it to the fatale instead or whatever. I have to say, I was fascinated by how contentious in a good, like fun way. I think our Bluebeard's bride game actually got, I wasn't expecting it to, but it, it does at certain points. And I was also fascinated by the way that the, as I mentioned, the aspects all are like mythic archetypes. And I don't know if this is really deeply baked into the game or if it's a symbiotic thing of like the people who are interested in thing X gravitate toward that archetype. But it was fascinating to me to see the players like really getting into archetype and actually... uh that's starting to play out in the way the game was played as well. I'll just say uh, Corey, who played our witch at one point, says something like, oh, you're, you all are always calling me in to clean up the mess or something like that, which to me is so I mean, I think of the witch from Into the Woods because I was just listening to that. And, like you know, like it's just such a 
perfect summary of one of the things that playbook is about I, mm-hmm. I found it really delightful. Yeah. And sort of circling back to our conversation on a previous episode about playbooks and archetypes, like I think the archetypal nature of this is really cool. But also I I think aside from giving you sort of as a player, like this is my this is my in in terms of my relationship to the world. Like if you're the virgin, that's a very different relationship to the world and Bluebeard's house than the animuses who has this sort of more antagonistic or you know critical eye that they're approaching it with like I think my opinion is that like the face moves are useful but the game is really like so much more about story than it is about using mechanics like I I think there is a version of this that you could play without making a role it just would require like I, I think the roles are useful but they're also they feel really secondary to me in this game and the playbooks feel not as important as just like having that hook of like this is my this sort of helps me decide what what feelings I have entering the game um, and how I might receive the rooms that I encounter. Um, speaking of rooms, uh, something that I think is really interesting is that this game sort of uses what I would call a version of procedural generation, which I'm probably not using entirely correctly, but essentially, the way that it is written to work is the player will describe a key as like, oh, it's, carved out of ivory and the base of it is a skull um, and it has rubies inlaid in the teeth or whatever it is. And the groundskeeper takes that description and turns that into a room on the spot. And in practice, I don't think that that's a super good way to like, I think that that's extremely high pressure for the groundskeeper. Um, And so I don't know that it's possible to like truly enter this game without having written some stuff in advance. But that said, um, I think it's it's a cool sort of balancing of like the player is sort of offering something and the groundskeeper is transforming that and translating that into the world. Uh, And the rooms themselves are suggested to be built around sort of like traditionally, quote unquote, feminine sources of horror, oppression, transgression, um, body, motherhood, religion, sexuality. And they're also sort of intended to house scenes from the past or things that may have happened historically uh, with other brides um, that the bride is encountering and then uses that information to sort of learn about the house and learn more about the world. Because I think you are intended to assume that she's coming in with no real knowledge of what has happened and what this person's history is. I did want to say, because I agree, Percy, that it's a very high pressure thing to put on a GM but I do also admire the way you mentioned that the groundskeeper guide gives you these like four kind of categories of horror Um, and I do admire the way that they break down kind of subsets of themes that would fall under each of those and then also um, give you specific room moves they call them that are tightly tied into those themes. So, for example, one of the room moves for a body room is paper the room with what society demands. Yeah. So even though, yes, you have to come up with the like aesthetic description of each room on the fly, really every room is just going to be like one of the one of these big buckets, maybe a mini theme bucket, and then you have a set of moves that will help guide you in the direction you want to go in. I also think um, one of the 
one of the things in the groundskeeper section about how you build these rooms um, that I thought was so beautiful and so messed up um, is at, during character creation, each of the aspects has to describe like what is a present um, that they want to give to Bluebeard um, for their wedding day. They also describe like what are the things they're most worried about losing with the prospect of this sudden marriage, etc. And the groundskeeper is advised to like grab those things and use those as sources of inspiration. What I thought was really cool about that is the questions in character creation feel kind of innocuous. Like they don't feel like super, super, super loaded. They don't feel like choice X gets Y. And then the way the writers have constructed this book, they're like, if someone's talking about like missing their long walks in the meadow, then you should like take away freedom and agency from them. Like those are the things that you should attack because that's what they're valuing in this moment, even if they don't know that. And like by pulling that away from them, you will be tapping into fear, even if you don't like you don't have to have a specific conversation about like, Percy, what are some things you're terrified of so that I can like draw that out? And I think this is like a really beautiful mechanic to be like you're with four or five people that you might know pretty well or you might not know pretty well. And like, here's how you can get under their skin very easily by asking nice things. And I think that that's bonkers. Um, like, <laughs> It's like fucked up in the best alarming. way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was very cool, but it was like, oh, geez, like, I don't even want to know what I would have answered for these things. Yeah, you you enter it and you're like, oh, what a cute like world building, like collaborative world creation. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, because I think there is an element like I think there is separately a necessary element of like, oh, we're all playing the same character. So we all need to have some kind of stake in like who she is and what she looks like and how she, you know, what what happened to her when she grew up and what's her relationship with her parents and all of these things. And I think those are all really, yeah, really important to establish. But yeah, the fact that there is this sort of secret ulterior motive of like, Oh, like you are, you are letting the groundskeeper tailor the game to you as players through the process of character creation is fascinating. Uh, yeah. And I will also say there's a real ritual feel to everything in this game. And I even though the questions start out innocuous, I think the simple act of repetition and the fact that the questions start to like spiral more and more in toward Bluebeard, if I'm remembering correctly, as the questions go in play, as you will all hear, listeners, uh, in play, it does start to suddenly feel a little loaded as those questions go on and the sort of like building blocks of the world start to accumulate into something that feels just like just unsettling enough to prime the pump for what this game is actually going to be. And I know I know we talked about this a bit before, but what I think is so fascinating about the Shiver with Fear move is that like it doesn't have to just be physical, but any like verbal or physical rejection or like retreat from whatever's happening counts as a Shiver with Fear. And I was reading the book again last night. I read it cover to cover. And the example that they have for Shiver with Fear is so horrifying that I like made a noise. And my friend who was sitting next to me reading something else was like, 
what happened? And I was like, well, and then I read it to her and she was like, God. And I was like, so we both would have shivered with fear in this situation. She was like, I don't like this at all. So she won't be listening to this arc. But um, I have to admit, I did describe this game to a friend a month or so ago. And, uh, you know, she was broadly familiar with the Bluebeard fairy tale. And I like described the mechanics of the game. And she was like, why would you play that? <laughs> well, and I, so yes, but what I'll, what I'll say with the caveat that I didn't actually play it, um, I just watched other people play it, is that it is like weirdly kind of cathartic. And I say this partially like as a person who has experienced misogyny and gendered violence, like there is something kind of powerful in like really directly confronting these experiences. And also like, just on a base level it is like kind of like there's a reason people like watching horror movies like it is kind of fun to be scared but also yeah like it is an intense it is an intense experience and like there is because that realization of like oh i see this thing this horrible thing that my character that you know my character is encountering is directly taken from a thing that i said earlier and that feeling of like oh i did this to myself is so like fascinating and complicated and emotional yeah it is certainly not a game for everybody <laughs> i would say mm-hmm. well and the book i also really appreciated the the like intro section of the book is very clearly like hey this what this game's about and if that's not for you that's okay and like also if you make plans to play this with some people like check in the day that you're doing it if that's still a good thing to do because this game isn't for everyone and that's fine like you can play any number of other things but like this is for a specific reason yeah and to sort of pivot that into talking a little bit more explicitly about what to expect in the coming episodes as we enter our bluebeard's bride arc the game is intentionally quite graphic um it's an opportunity for players to lean into the sort of dark and horrific impulses that we as humans have um and it is worth noting that our actual play gets pretty dark and pretty scary We will uh, give you some content advisories at the beginning of the episodes, as well as more detailed ones in our show notes. But this is sort of your warning ahead of time that if you uh, are sort of not super into listening to a game that delves into these themes super deeply, uh, now you now you know ahead of time. Uh, And I also wanted to flag that we worked with a safety consultant, Ella Bach, who you may remember from last season's Apocalypse World game. uh, And they were just sort of on hand to be a resource for our players. Um, and facilitate conversations about everybody's boundaries and things that everybody needed from the gameplay experience um, uh, in advance. It's also worth noting that this is our first ever short game. Uh, Bluebeard's Bride is designed to be played in one single setting. Uh, You can play the game again and again, but each story only takes one sit down to complete. Uh, So what you can expect from this is two actual play episodes with a commentary in between, and then an interview with some of the cast before we move on to our next system. So not as long as our regular kind of main season games, but just as exciting and perhaps even more uh, terrifying (laughs) and fascinating. Yeah, I mean, just to, again, speaking only from my experience of watching the recording, like this is one of the most intense TTRBG experiences I've ever had. Um, and I'm really, really excited that we had an opportunity to play this game and folks who were down to really like get into it and try this with us. So I think you all will really, really enjoy it. 
Excellent. Well, we'll see you next week with our first actual play episode of Bluebeard's Bride. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orbis, and it's mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nerds. Check out cast bios on our website, DungeonsAndDramaNerds.com, and tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. 